0: Hello again, this is Scott Orr, and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. One of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to have an excuse to talk to some of the best in the industry, and my guest today, Portia Sabin, is definitely one of the best. Portia is the owner and president of Kill Stars in Portland. Her label has been home to Elliott Smith, The Decembrist, Linda Perry, Horse Feathers, and Slater Kinney. In addition to running a record label, she's on the board of A2IM, and she hosts her own podcast called The Future of What, which Pigeons and Planes just named one of the top 25 best music podcasts. Portia, thanks so much for doing this. How are you doing?
1: Good, Scott. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. I, I really do appreciate this. Uh, ben gave me your contact and... Um, the more I've, I've researched you and your qualifications today, the more nervous I got for this interview. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm a normal person. So okay.
0: Don't worry. All right. Um, can you take us back to the very beginning of the label? Uh, when did it start and, and when did you come on board?
1: Uh, the label was started in 1991 by Slim Moon, who okay. was, a young state worker in Olympia, Washington, who loved music and was part of the music scene and wanted to document the scene as he saw it and, you know, the the bands that his friends were in. And he was a spoken word artist at the time. So his first release was a split seven-inch spoken word single with him on one side and Kathleen Hanna on the other side called Boy Girl. Okay. And then the first full-length release was a compilation um, that had a whole bunch of his friend's bands on it, including his next door neighbor, Kurt Cobain's band Nirvana. Oh man. And uh that record was released in like September. It was like August of 91 or September of 91. And then Nevermind was released in September of 91. And so the, the comp sold 25,000 copies.
0: Oh wow. Of the
1: CD like right away. It was on CD. So,
0: wow. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. I didn't know that. So
1: that's... Yeah. That's that's how Kill Rock Stars got off the ground um in 91, 27 years ago. And I started getting involved around 2000 um I started dating Slim Moon in 2000 and Okay. I was at the time I was in a rock band in New York. I'm from New York and um I was in graduate school. I was getting a PhD in anthropology <laughs> from Columbia University and uh we had this long distance thing for a while. And eventually I moved to Olympia to do my dissertation research at the Evergreen State College. And, um, so I started doing some like odd jobs around kill rock stars. Like one time our press person went on vacation, went on tour with her band for a month. So I did press for a month. And then at one point we lost a, you know, he lost his production person. So I did production for like a year and a half. (laughs) Um, you know, so it's like I started doing these sort of odd jobs, but it was it was still like a very separate lo- like world. Like right. I never had any pretensions to really work at the label. I was um I was gonna be a, a professor. Wow. <laughs> and <laughs> um but in, in two thousand one, which is when I quit quit my band, um, I started managing bands and I started my own management company called Shot Clock Management. And right. um in 2005, I started managing uh, one of the bands on Kill Stars. a band called The Gossip from okay, Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. They had moved to Olympia from Arkansas. They were like 18-year-old kids. And um, I managed them for three years, during which time they went gold in the UK. Wow. They um, got signed to a major label. They, got, they signed a major publishing deal. Um, like a whole bunch of stuff happened during that three-year period. That was like pretty serious. I also graduated. I got my PhD and I got a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington in Seattle. Oh my! Goodness. So I was commuting from Olympia to Seattle every day, and then you know flying to London like every third or fourth week. Um, it was nuts. Like it was a really <laughs> insane nuts time. Oh, and I also married Slim, so we got oh, married. Um,
0: That's great. And <laughs> when did you guys get married?
1: In 2004. 2004. Awesome. Yeah, so we've been married a super long time. It's crazy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, what's what's my... Oh, yeah. So um, in 2006, one day, Slim came home from work, and he was like, you know something? I've been doing this 15 years. I think I'm tired of it. I want to do something different. Would you take over the label and shut it down? Shut it down? Yeah, shut it down. So I was like, well... um, I have to think about that. And so I'm thinking about it as I'm commuting to, you know, Seattle every day. And I'm like, man, I hate this commute. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of hated my postdoc, too. Like, it really wasn't fun. And I was finding out firsthand that academia was not the... um, You know, it's like after you you go to grad school for a super long time and you think you want to do it. But I found out also that a lot of other people go into grad school with their eyes way more wide open than I had. Okay. I just really wanted, I was just really interested in the subject. Like I love anthropology. I was totally interested in it. Love teaching. So, you know, I thought this sounds cool. But like, you know, when you get into it, you're like, oh man, this is um, maybe not a field that I really want to be a part of. It's pretty doggy dog and hectic. Right. you know, if you're going to be a professor, you need to really be willing to, you know, I mean the competition is so tough. Um, you know, I would have needed to be willing to move to, you know, Tulsa or wherever. Oh, I see. I see. You know, and, and and to get whatever job I could get. And I kind of wasn't into that. And then also at the same time, I'm, you know, managing this band that's going gold. Uh, we're totally, my management business is totally flourishing and I'm having a really good time. So I'm like, well, you know, one of these has got to go.
0: That's so crazy. It's such a weird, I mean, I've heard so many weird trajectories into the music business. Like, it's so crazy. Like I was talking with Corey from Three Lobed a couple days ago, and he's a full-time lawyer. And it's just so, it's so bizarre. How some, not. I just assume everyone is, starts off the same way, but that is so fascinating. So he, okay. So Slim wanted to, wanted you to shut down the label. He wanted you to take over and and shut it down what did that mean
1: well that's and that's the thing it's like i kind of um i it also kind of didn't sound like a real long-term commitment to me it sounded like well he wants me to take the label over and shut it down i'm like i guess i can i guess i can agree to that <laughs> okay. you
0: know yeah
1: and then at the same time cuz i'm like well then i'll just be doing music business full time and you know i didn't i'm not like a huge long-term planning person. So I wasn't, like, really worried about it. I was like, I'm sure that'll be fine. That sounds okay. (laughs) Um, But at the same exact moment, he was like, and I'm applying for this job in New York City at Such Records, which he got. So at the same moment that I took over the label, we moved to New York. Oh. So... It was total chaos. Like, I was on the East Coast. The whole rest of the office is on the West Coast. I'm trying to do a job I don't know how to do from 3,000 miles away. I'm flying to London all the time. It was nuts. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. Um, But here's the thing. He had already slated 27 records for, for 2007. Oh. So we had to put out 27 records. And so, you know, my first and most important piece of business was you know how do i figure out how to run this label how do i figure out all the pieces of things that i'm supposed to be doing and we have to put out all these albums that you know had already been delivered and we had art and yeah. you know there's stuff in the works like we just had a whole schedule of of releases so i just dove in and you know Poked my head up at around like November of two thousand seven, and was like, "Hey, this is kind of <laughs> <This> awesome." <worked>. <laughs> That's <laughs> I'm amazing. Fun.
0: And you're running this from you're running it from New York, but the where was the the label was originally based in Olympia, Olympia, Washington. Okay. Yeah, okay.
1: Olympia, Washington. And then um, in two thousand seven, the same year, uh, we uh, two of the people who worked at Kill Rockstars Stars moved to Portland and opened a portland office so we were kind of like a three we had three cities we were in three cities which was crazy and then um my husband got laid off after eight months at Nunsuch, and he came home on friday and he was like what do you want to do and i was like get the hell out of new york city like (laughs) this is terrible because it was just it's just new york i mean i grew up in new york new york is my home and we were living like 10 blocks from my mom but still (laughs) it was like it just was too much it's it's so hard to live there i don't know you know i Kudos to people who can do right. it. But it's All just right. <laughs> the stress level is is out of control. So I was like, let's get out of here. Um, so we thought about where we wanted to move to, and we ended up picking Portland because you know Maggie and Ben had already moved here, and we already had a Kill Rockstar's office open right. here. So I was like, well, let's just go to Portland. It seems like a perfectly nice place. We've always liked it in the past. Right. I mean, there was like not a ton of thought. I have to tell you, <laughs> that was it.
0: <laughs> but it, it so seems we like po- moved here. It seems like Portland is kind of a. Um, um, like a great art scene and, and it, and there's a lot of labels from Portland.
1: Oh yeah. Was that the no, case no. in mean, 2007? Yeah. I mean, the thing is there had always been there, there was always a funny pipeline between Portland and Olympia. Um, most of our biggest artists on the label had actually come from Portland and that was not by design. It just happened. So, you know, two thirds of Slater Kinney are from Portland mm. Um, Elliot Smith was from Portland. The Decemberists are from Portland, right. you know, sort of, it just kind of fell out that way, which was weird. And, you know, people would move to Olympia to go to Evergreen or whatever, and then move back to Portland. I mean, that's what happened with Slater Kinney. Okay. Um, and, and so Portland just seemed really, and it, you know, P- Portland is a good stop on tours. Like there's always yeah. going to be bands coming yeah. through. So we thought it would be a perfectly good place to live, um. You know, but I'm not like we didn't we didn't like really think like, you know, weigh every single detail. We were just like, yeah, Portland (laughs) sounds cool. We like it there.
0: (laughs) And were you you still managing gossip or what was happening with that?
1: Yeah, I managed them until halfway through 2008. Okay. Yeah. But um, so we moved to Portland, opened, you know, Actually, ended up moving the office to a different location, but yeah, uh, moved into the the Portland office of Kill Rockstars and been running it ever since. Um, we did not shut it down, as you can yeah, tell. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> did you did you just say? Like, uh, I'm going to keep this going. Are you still in the process of shutting it down? Is that the thing? <laughs>
1: yeah, eleven years later, I'm. I'll sh- I'm going to shut this sucker down any day now. Takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Um, I think, well, I think really what happened was over the course of 2007, 2006 and 2007, I found some bands that I really liked and I signed those bands Hmm. and we put out their records in 2008. Um, and that was Horse Feathers, Tao and The Thermals. Oh, okay. And those three records did great. Yeah. Great band. Those, all those bands did great. Totally. And so I was like, Hey, I'm pretty good at this. (laughs) This is awesome. (laughs) So, um, and of course then I, you know, immediately signed bands that completely tanked. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's
0: all right. What was um, the, it was like, sorry, yeah, sorry. So 2000, um, so when you started 2006, 2007, and, and, and you've brought us up to about 2008 now, what was the industry like back then? And and what were your first few years like? I, I'm trying to think back to what, um, you know, there were still CDs, whatnot. I think it was just prior to the, to the vinyl or vinyl is, um, just kind of starting off to to kick back in. What was the industry like then?
1: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question to me for for you know, because I do what I do. Right. Uh, you know, we we had stopped doing Kill Rockstars had stopped doing vinyl um for several years at okay. the point when I took over. Okay. We did not Slim did not put out vinyl interesting. for anything. And it took uh maybe a couple years. I remember we had moved to portland i think maybe 2008 2009 when we started doing vinyl again uh when people when people were like you know you really we really need vinyl yeah you know it's gonna sell yeah um so it took us maybe a couple years before we started doing that but now of course you know obviously we do vinyl for everything pretty much everything um but the other thing that was interesting and i i always give my husband a lot of credit uh he's He's genuinely an an, an an industry visionary, like he really is. He's okay. he's the kind of guy who's like, you know, Tom Silverman of Tommy Boy or, you know, I can think of other people who just had a vision and a, a belief about how the industry was going to go mm. um, for for good and for ill. You know, people with yeah. an ear, Tom yeah. Wally, you know, um, for if you want to go on the major label side, but now he runs an indie called Loma Vista. Um, You know, people who just had an ear for music, for bands, and also just a nose for the industry. And I think that one of the reasons my husband wanted to get out of the label was because he smelled the digital revolution. Really? Coming. I do. I honestly do. He doesn't even necessarily say that, but I think... I think that's the case because he's always had that like five ten year vision right, which I've already admitted that I do not have because <laughs> <Right.
0: laughs> when so, he made that decision in two thousand six <laughs> iTunes was a he pre- was present, but it was yeah yeah it was a baby yeah it, right. it
1: was a baby um because really what i the i would say the big uh the the big event of my tenure at Kill Rockstars has been the dig- digital revolution. It's, totally. it was a really tough time to live through. Mm-hmm. Um, everything changed. You know, we went from, when I, when I took over the label, we had a product that we could, ma- you know, we could physically make mm-hmm. and that we could physically sell. And we had an entire business model put together based on physical sales to, you know, through a distributor to independent and other types of stores. Are you saying and,
0: primarily CDs?
1: Primarily, yeah. Primarily CDs okay. at the time, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But also whatever else was, you know, okay. our other little bits and pieces. Because, you know, sometimes there were seven inches. There was, there was kind of more of a market for seven inches in those days than it's not, it hasn't been as right. consistent. Right. I've heard days. that, yeah. Um, but it was, you know, to, to literally, so that was, you know, I could make a, a business plan and a marketing budget based on sales. And and when hmm. I first took over the label, I could be guaranteed that whatever I put out would probably sell about 2,000 copies. Wow. Just, and if it did well, you know, if people were into it, it would sell more than that. But 2,000 was kind of like the basics. And that would allow me to make a plan on how much I was going to spend on recording, how much we were going to spend on marketing, how much we were going to sp- let them spend on art and photos. You know, right. it completely dictated how we would approach each release. And... Overnight, we changed to a place where you you that was it. Music was free. really And you, yeah, overnight and you you couldn't make that uh, apples to apples con- uh, comparison anymore. you couldn't make a business plan. you couldn't make a marketing plan. You know, you just couldn't plan the same way and and the new that's where we're that's where we're at now. We're in a very new moment.
0: Yeah. Do, when you say, when you say overnight, what year was this we were talking about?
1: Well, I, I think the worst, worst year, the really bad year was 2010.
0: 2010. Okay. And so, yeah. but that was, that was prior to streaming in the way we know it now, right? Wasn't it like, absolutely. so it was MP3s that, that did that shift?
1: It was, um, or w- it was, it was the, the ability of people to go online and listen to something for free and Uh, not have to buy it in a record store. uh, Right. And it just completely crashed record sales. Right. And Now, obviously nothing has gone away completely. Um, You know, vinyl is, is nice and healthy. And even the CD, you know, I was in a board meeting the other day and saw a slide of, um, of uh, different formats, over the last, I think, fifteen years was the slide. I can't remember. Yeah, ten or fifteen years, and CDs have only declined thirty percent. Wow! In a in a time when um, digital downloads have declined sixty percent.
0: Wow! Yeah. So right.
1: You know, all this talk that you see in the news mm-hmm. these days about the death of the CD. I kind of would myself have a little, you know, give people a little pause because I think thirty percent in ten years compared to sixty percent in ten years is actually, you know, I think we're all agreeing that there's the death of the digital download, right? But I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think it's true about CDs, and there's certainly artists that we still need to make CDs for, you know, because they're mostly a <clears throat> right. CD. That's true. Yeah, band. I've heard
0: that too, and and I think it's really kind of um, centric to where um to different cultures like i know i'm sure there's other countries where cd's play a, a bigger role and i think there's other genres where um and demographics where cd's are still present so i yeah i'm I, i'm not surprised by that
1: yeah and i mean you know i think everybody is sort of continu- continually surprised when they think about it because of the changes in technology in terms of like Apple just quit making, you know, MacBooks with a CD yeah, drive. Right, right. So that's it's true. like people send me CDs, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> yeah, I, don't I have know. Any way of listening to this, you <laughs> yeah. know. But cars have CD players still. Yeah. I mean, and lots of people drive cars with CD players, so that's one big way that people listen to music. And then, you know, still a lot of people have stereos with CD players. I mean, so it, it totally depends on the demographic. Mm-hmm but if you get right down to it you know older people who are the people who are more more likely to buy CDs are the ones who are more likely to buy music in the first place right so yeah. you know you can't count those people out
0: that's really good i'm yeah no that's really interesting um man okay so 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 where are we so we're talking about tw- 2010 was was uh, a rough patch was there i mean i'm hoping there's a, a a a light at the end of the story but is there was there a time where things started to shift and and you started to see a little bit of hope or is it constantly changing where uh, everything is unpredictable with each release?
1: Well, I will say, you know, 2010 was bad and I think 2011 was the year that Spotify came to America. Okay. I think. Um, You can fact check me on that. I'm not really sure. Sure, (laughs) sure. And I was extremely, you know, we were all spouting the same narrative at that time which was you know streaming music is is devaluing music and i'm not going to accept a rate of 0.004 three right, cents right, per right. <laughs> stream for a song that you know could cost 99 cents if you're buying it on a, as a download yeah um and so i kept my whole catalog off of spotify for wow. the first year okay and then i had a band horse feathers in fact um uh, my friend Justin, who is the singer in Horse Feathers, he came to my office. He they had just gone on a big national tour and he was like, Portia, we gotta be on Spotify. And I was like, Really? Why? It was like <laughs> every single night kids would come up to the merch table and say, Why are you guys not on Spotify? Like oh. I can't find you on Spotify. And I was like, Oh man. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Damn it.
0: Interesting. So
1: annoyed. But I was like, well, listen, we'll we'll give it a try and we'll see what happens. So we put our stuff up on Spotify, you know, the whole catalog, mm-hmm. and we even did the, you know, we we did the windowing thing where you uh, know it's like we'd keep a release off right, of the first right. month and until it had a chance to to play out in retail. And um, you know, the numbers from Spotify are just absolutely insane. They've just been growing and growing and growing and growing. And so Spotify and other streaming services have created a very significant new income stream, which at the moment is pretty stable. So mm. that's been great. You know, we're all very yeah. happy for that. Um, I would say I remain a skeptic about everything yeah. <laughs> because you just never know. And I, I would, you know, I think one of the nice things about being an independent label is that independent labels are small enough and our overhead is, is manageable enough that we can be nimble and we can sure. change up if necessary. You know, I mean, I True. remember, I think it was 2010. I think we only put out one record the whole year because I basically told my staff, I was like, Well, you have a choice. You can get a paycheck or we can put out records. Wow. But this is it. Like we are we are gonna be lean and mean and we're just gonna, you know, survive. Put mm, yeah. <laughs> our heads down <laughs> and see how we if we can stay in business and then we did thank god and you know as we've as we've come along come out of that time you know it's gotten better and better but um but that's that was rough and you know i i interview people all the time on my podcast and lately i've been interviewing a lot of people who started labels in 2010 wow and i'm always just like <laughs> oh my god yeah. how did you do that yeah. that's so Incredible to me because I'm like, that is the time that I'd be like, you know, toilet paper salesman, um, <laughs> you know, win, window washer, all like right. what else can I do? Um
0: We're hopping all over the place and I want to, I want to just, I want to camp out on, on streaming just for a sec because it is such a, um, it's such a popular thing and, and it's, um, it's so mysterious right now. Um, but I'm, I, I've noticed I've noticed too, Spotify going from, I mean, it came to Canada just a little bit later than America, but, um, I noticed in the, in the past, since 2016, where the revenue for certain artists started to be kind of stable, almost as if like, um, it was almost like this, there's a subscription service to your music and it's now it's, it's a little bit more predictable as opposed to, um, when you'd have a for us we'd have a release on Bandcamp. we'd make a couple hundred dollars in that week or that or a couple of the around a few of those weeks and then that album would kind of die and disappear whereas i've noticed spotify to kind of um does away with the release date a little bit and gives a a longer life to to records um anyway i want to ask you did you pivot your promotional efforts to focus on spotify lately is that like when that kind of did that shift like how does that change um the way you guys do things
1: well um that's a good question you know i had a lot of trouble i still ha- you know i think i think it might be different for for younger people but because i ran the label in the era of physical mm-hmm. i i have a lot of trouble believing um in paying to push people to a service where they don't really have to pay. Right. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, so we actually did no marketing with Spotify of any sort. Um, mm. And recently, just this last year, we actually did start doing some marketing, but it's because the services have been stepping up uh, and offering you know, some help in various types of marketing. Okay. So it's more like I'm willing to do it if they're willing to contribute too. because that, Mm. you know, I I think, and all the services are a little bit different from each other, but, you know, it's always been difficult for me to, to, you know, find a way to like give Amazon a break, you know? Right. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) Amazon doesn't need a break from me, you know, (laughs) they don't need (laughs) my dollar 50, right? Like they are doing fine. Um, and you know, we do work, you know, I think Apple has been a really great partner Mm. for, especially for indie labels. Yeah, for sure. Um, We've, we've liked working with them a lot. Um, and yeah, lately I, I would say we are doing a little bit more marketing towards some of the streaming services, um. But as a rule, I would say our marketing efforts are are uh, aimed at, um, you know, day of release, go right. to our merch table, you know, pre-order, you know, go to your, and then go to your local record store. You know, right. we, we try to support indie retail as much as possible. And, you know, we do that by giving special, you know, special gifts and giveaways and goodies that you can only get at the record store.
0: Totally. Um, uh,
1: and I think a lot of labels do that right now.
0: Um, I, I, you know, we're talking about streaming and, and I, I read an article recently just the other day that I, I, I think it's from a, a year or so ago called the secret lives of playlists. Um, and I don't know if, I don't know if you read this, this piece, but I found it very overwhelming and kind of for a tiny independent label. It was, it was really discouraging. Um, it, what advice can you provide for like startup indies or smaller indies, like for navigating the streaming world? Cause it, it seems like, um, it's shifting back to like the radio in the eighties where it's, um, really difficult to get any sort of, uh, or retail, I would say maybe in the nineties or two thousands, um, where it's, it's getting different to, to have our artists discovered on Spotify.
1: Well, I think maybe you need to not think of Spotify as a discovery platform. Okay. I think that might be one way to help because I do think that there has been a lot of um, talk about... You know, the word discovery has has been used and it's also been used by Spotify. Like Spotify in particular has really used that, like Discover Weekly. Like they are really touting themselves and their algorithm in particular as, as, you know, doing great stuff for helping people discover music. But, you know, there's an argument that radio was also helping people discover music and no one had any idea of the, you know, millions in payola mm-hmm. that it yeah. took to get a, a band on the radio But that doesn't mean that that's not the first place I heard Duran Duran because it was, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's like, I still did discover music. I just discovered music that was probably getting pushed by, you know, big corporations uh, for a lot of money. Um, And that's not always bad. Like that's not, you know, I would say one thing that's kind of different right now is, you know, a a lot of the fallout in the music industry in the last 10 years, especially, you know, because right around 2010 when everything was hitting bottom, you know, a lot of the majors laid off a lot of people, right? And those people went out and started independent record labels,
0: <laughs> right? Interesting. They did. Interesting. And
1: and that's legit. And they, you know, they brought their expertise and their connections and their knowledge and everything. And you know, there are some very big, very powerful independent labels in America right now who are genuinely independent. Hmm. And um, I think that's only a good thing. Uh, incredible. You know, for the for the system. But, you know, it's like, I mean, Taylor Swift is on an independent label.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, is it a bad thing that people are learning about Taylor Swift from Spotify algorithms? I You know, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to argue <laughs> right. that. Right. But, yeah, I hear what you're saying. If yeah. you're a small label, if you're, you know, you have a young unknown artist. I mean, it's tough. There are some services that have popped up that, um, you know, I'm not plugging because I am, you know, like getting a kickback sure, or anything. Sure, sure. But, you know, I, I recently in- interviewed the guy who runs a, a service called Crosshair, which is a, you know, a, basically it's a discovery platform. It, it's, it helps you get your, you know, you pay a certain amount of money mm-hmm. and they send your song to certain, you know, playlist curators. And if the people like you and put you on their playlist, it's it's like another way to get yourself onto those. I mean, it's like, you know, it's not payola, but it's like the, the tiny minor version of, of yeah. you know, <laughs> hey, will you listen to my song? Like, how do you get people to listen to your song? And, you know, these days I find that a lot less objectionable than I did 20 years ago, just because we're talking about an ocean, you know, the the world of streaming music is an ocean. It's just a vast, you know, the internet is just a vast ocean of music. You cannot be expected to be able to know what's in it Mm. and to have heard everything, you know? And I feel like that's, you know it's a, it's the technology has presented us with new challenges, and it's good for us to take advantage of of the tools that technology presents us with to try to get people to hear new stuff. I mean, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. well you know? I, and I think there's regular channels, you know, press and all that stuff that you could still do, but you know take advantage of what's out there.
0: I like that you I like that that you said not to to rely on on streaming sites as a as a platform for discovery. What what do you think are, are um platforms of discovery um that some artists are overlooking because of all the hype around Spotify?
1: Well, you know Bandcamp, I'm a huge mm, fan of. Absolutely. Um I think Bandcamp is great. I think they have put together a great staff of curators mm-hmm. you know they've done more and more curation to help people be able to find stuff uh that they wouldn't normally find um and i don't think you're going to get like i think it was just this morning that i saw in the news that 99% of spotify listens are for 10% of the songs that are on spotify
0: yes i've heard that that's crazy
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean that but that's really not surprising, right? Like sure, that is the sure. nature of popularity. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's what true. popularity means, yeah. right? So <laughs> um the nice part about Bandcamp is, you know, they're not an algorithm that's just aggregating listens. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. because necessarily if you're listening to something that's aggregated by an algorithm, the, the thing that you're going to listen to first is going to be the most popular thing that most people have listened to.
0: Right, right. Right? Yeah. So you yeah. know it's
1: going to be Ed Sheeran. Yeah. Hands down. <laughs> yes. So it's just that's how it is. But, like, you know, at Bandcamp and at other places, other sites that are not, that are um, curated, yes. you know, hand curated yes. and not machine curated, you're going to find new stuff that you would never imagine. So, you know, check out Bandcamp's, um,
0: Totally. Playlists and yeah, and,
1: uh, little articles and stuff.
0: That's actually a good point. That's a great argument against the algorithms. When you, when you realize that that can end up just becoming a your own musical echo chamber, where you're being fed music that you know you're already gonna like, as opposed to discovering something that that maybe makes you a little uncomfortable at first. <laughs> you know, I think that's totally. kind of interesting. I never, I hadn't really looked at it that way. I I love Bandcamp. I love they just came out with their year end. Um, and I love, I mean, talk about CDs. I think they said their CD sales are up last year. Um, but I think it's so fascinating there. It's funny. They've been referring to streaming sites as renting music. That's kind of the verb they (laughs) use, which I think is cheeky, but it's a good point. It's really good. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to, let's go, let's go back to the label. I want you've said something that I really want you to explain. Um, super serving the super fan. Can you tell can you explain that?
1: Well, I think that that is kind of the business that we are in right now. You know, if we're not in the business of selling, like, I'll, here, I'll try, to be, I'll try to be clear about it. Once upon a time, you put your music out into the world You, as a label. You would, you know, release a record, and you'd be like, I hope a million people hear this record. Because mm. this record is really good, right? Right. But the way that we've evolved and where we're at right now... You're pretty sure that a million people are not going to listen to it, and and there's so many reasons for that. You know, one is just time and the amount of other things that are out there. You know, right. we're we're comp- you're competing. You're not competing against a thousand other songs. You're competing against like a billion other songs. <laughs> so yeah. it's not possible. Right? It's just not possible for your thing, even if it becomes NPR Song of the Day, or even if it's you know. on Pitchfork or whatever. It's like, no matter what the thing is that's pushing it, you're still not gonna get every single person in the universe to listen to Mm, it, right? Yeah. So what can we do? Well, we can find the people who love the artist and we can give them more, Mm. more and more and more, you know, because those are the people that have, a proven track record of being interested in this artist and loving this artist and wanting to support this artist, which is, you know, an urge that fans do have. Yeah, And so you have to give them opportunities to do that. I mean, I learned that from Benji Rogers of pledge music, like seven years ago or eight years ago when he, he was like, you have got to give people the opportunity to pay more, you know, because if you don't, you're leaving money on the table. And I could not agree with that more. Like you have to give, Listen, if your CD is ten bucks, you have to give. That's great. A bunch of people will buy it at ten bucks because they want the CD. But <laughs> if you have a CD plus, the band will cook you dinner for 000, yeah, a thousand dollars. Yeah, you'd be stupid point. not to do it because yeah. guess what? There's five or six people out there who would do- totally do that. Yeah, who would totally pay a thousand bucks to get the band to make them dinner or whatever. <laughs> um, and you'd be leaving that five thousand bucks on the table if you don't put that out there as an option. So that's a good point. You know, that's. I think that that is kind of the business that we're all in right now, and you see that all the time across the industry with deluxe packaging and you know mm. bonus CDs, bonus LPs, bonus seven inches, bonus everything. You know, yeah. and and all the gifts and the different types of merch, and you know, that's what we're doing. Is we're kind of at the moment we're kind of in the busy in the business of super serving the superfans.
0: I love that. That's a great. That's a great line. Does uh, so. I, I mean. In that in that regard, Kill Rock Stars would have, you know, uh, would you say they would have their own fan base? That there are there are fans that would, you know, essentially buy whatever you put out.
1: Well, that's the funny part. You know, in the '90s, you remember indie cred? Remember the phrase right. indie cred? Yep. I don't know how old yep. you are, but that was like a real thing for a minute. Um, okay, people actually cared and and selling out that's another phrase that kind of went hand in hand with yeah
0: yeah
1: and so there was a lot of you know the indie cred was something that you could trade with you could actually have indie cred you could give other people cred you could you know (laughs) you could sort of taint people or um bless them with your credibility right um and and, and labels had distinct personalities and distinct audiences. You know, mm. in, the early, in the early 90s, when Kill Rockstars was around, I was a huge Kill Rockstars fan, um, you know, before I knew anybody who worked there or knew anything you know, awesome. about labels. That's awesome. That's amazing. I was in a Riot Girl band, you know, and right. we covered Bikini Kill songs and Bratmobile songs right. and all that stuff. <laughs> and, and, you know, to me, that was that was really important. So when you saw the name Kill Rock Stars, you were like, oh, I know I'm going to like it because I they have all these awesome, you know, Riot Girl bands, mm. and I bet this is, band is going to be something for me. Yeah. Um, and it was the same with other labels, Alternative Tentacles, SST, Touch and Go, you know. You kind of knew what you were going to get, and you trusted, it's like you trusted the brand.
0: Right, totally.
1: Um, and then... You know, the world changed. Things became different, and it's it's. I would say that labels still definitely have their own brands, their own personalities, but I don't think people. I don't think fans have as much loyalty okay. anymore. Okay. I don't think people are necessarily, or they're not as many people who feel quite as strongly. I could be, I could be wrong. I mean, sure. there might be a ton of millennials who are listening to this, going, "No, I care. I really love Don <laughs> Giovanni." You know, right, right, right. Father Daughter Records or whatever, yeah. and oh, you know, yeah. these are great labels. Well, I think
0: I agree. And I and I, uh, the reason I ask is, I'm kind of curious. Is that you know, I spend a lot of time w- working on the label website and working on um, the aesthetic of the label and and interacting with you know, running our social media, but I I. I'm conflicted because I wonder, and I'm, I don't want to ask you, how much effort should be put into promoting the brand of the label versus the brand of the artists?
1: Um, well, I think the brand of the label really just has to come down to your values. And so I don't necessarily know that you have to promote that in any way except via the bands you sign. Okay. You know, like for me, we, we've we always been really feminist, really, you know, queer positive. Mm-hmm and really punk. And so I feel like as long as we're putting out music that aligns with those values, then we're doing, you know, the the artists speak for us, right? right. They 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 tell people what our values are and, and what kind of a label we are. And I don't necessarily think we have to do a ton more branding mm. than that. Um you know, it, it depends on how you want to position yourself in the in, in the industry. I'm I'm not 100% sure that you know, it's like do, does anyone who's a Taylor Swift fan, for example, know that she's on Big Machine Records, which is an independent right, label? Like, right. Do they know that? Do they care? Hmm. Hard to say.
0: Yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs>
1: um, I almost think that labels are branded more for other labels and other people in the industry. So people kind of know who oh, you are. Oh,
0: good point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Fair. Like within the industry yeah. as opposed
1: to like fan facing. I think fan facing, you your branding should all be about the artist.
0: That's, That's really wise. It's a good point. Um, Yeah. Now I feel, I feel guilty for, because I'm kind of thinking, yeah, maybe it was just to kind of impress other industry people. (laughs) Um, (laughs)
1: That's okay. There's nothing wrong with
0: that. (laughs) Um, So let's, let's shift over to comedy. This is something that was really interesting when I was looking through your label and, and something that Ben um, really wanted me to talk to, talk to you about. So your label has recently, I don't know how recently, but done something really unique and gotten into comedy records. What was the impetus for that?
1: Well, one thing was um we were really interested in comedy in in the office. Like everybody in my office loves comedy. Okay. <laughs> and has for years and has purchased comedy records and and stuff like that. But We didn't know how to get into comedy because the only models that we had were, like, you know, Sub Pop had some, like, David Cross records and Patton Oswalt records. And so I was, like, well, how do you do that? you just, like, call a famous person and be, like, hey, famous (laughs) person, you want to do your next record on us? Like, it just seemed really weird. Like, to me, that was just, I didn't know how. Like, how would I do that? Like, call up, you know, some some those famous US, uh, New Zealand dudes. I can't remember who they are. <laughs> Whatever. And just be like, Hey, do you guys want to do a record? I don't know. Sure. It just seemed weird. So uh, that's, that seemed like out of reach. Um, and then in terms of like young up and coming comedians, you know, I was very interested in it, but I hadn't, I just hadn't like figured out how, you, how you would really do that. Mm. Or if there was a market for it, like anything. So then one day in, tw- in uh, 2012, w- the comedian Kurt Brownaller tweeted something about Kill Rock Stars, or we retweeted a tweet of his. That's oh, it okay. Was. And then he tweeted, Oh my God, Kill Rock Stars just retweeted me. Ugh. My 14 year old self is freaking out. <laughs> and like within an hour, I had gotten a hold of him because we were huge fans of his in the office. Oh, and- wow. I was on the phone with him and I was like, dude, do you want to do a comedy record? And he was like, I totally want to do a comedy record. So we're, we did it. So 2013 was our first comedy re- release, which was Kurt Brown Oler. Okay. Um, and we just had so much fun doing it and we found out like how we, I mean, so many things about comedians are different from working with artists. First of all, the overhead is so, I mean, the costs of recording are so much lower. Yeah. I was kind of thinking not, that. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a whole band going into a studio, it's just one person. Um Are they live so recording? That was like Yeah, they're all live recordings and it was really fun cuz you know, living in Portland has a lot of advantages, one of which is that you know, we're we're friends with the venues and the venues are really rad and so it's like they let us do like a free recording basically. You know, they we had to pay for the sound engineer but Right. you know, they got to they got to keep the door.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean that was our
1: first <laughs> Experience and you know that we've done so it differently cool. in other ways, but you know it was just like you know it, it worked out and we're just like oh this is really fun, um and then we've learned so much from you know we've done a whole bunch of different things, but but what I quickly discovered after we released Kurt's record and I love Kurt, he's totally a friend and he would totally he knows that I would say something like mm-hmm. this, you know we immediately were like wait a second do we just want to put out white guys? Uh-huh. Like, no, this is an opportunity for us to be true to our brand and, you know, put out those alternative voices that are out there right now that, you know, the women and the people of color, amazing the queer artists, and that, that is totally in alignment with, you know, who we've been all along.
0: That's, ex- I mean, that's so funny. I have, that's a question I have right here is, is, is that, you know, how did comedy align with your original vision and, or, or did you have to shift? But I mean, that's amazing to hear.
1: Yeah, that was that was like a big part of it. I'm We got so excited because we were like, oh, my God, this is a great opportunity for us to put out these fabulous artists of color and, you know, queer people and, you know, fabulous women and just, you know, yeah, everybody that we've all the types of artists we've always wanted to work with that we've always worked with, you know, but, you know, these are these are comedians. And um and I think that it also was like just the perfect time because, you know, as you know, here in America, we're. In somewhat of a horrible political situation. <laughs> right. And I've heard. I think it was, yeah. Oh my God, Justin Trudeau, like, can he come Isn't save he great? us, please? Isn't he great? Yeah. Can, can he put on his cape and, like, come get us?
0: He probably could.
1: I bet he could. Um, but he, it's like, so we had all at the same exact moment, not only a lot of, um, you know, alignment with who we wanted to be working with, but we also had a lot of alignment in terms of people who had a lot to say. Mm. And, you know, there was a lot of sort of speaking truth to power and a lot of, you know, personal truth happening, and we just got so excited because we were like, this is, this is exactly, I mean, this is Bikini Kill, this is Bratmobile, this is Huggy Bear, these are like those riot girl bands that were so honest in the early 90s about their experiences and their political vision and beliefs. And so I just was thrilled that we had an opportunity to sort of dovetail with our you know twenty something year old self
0: yeah well I mean okay, so I want to ask about the audience for comedy records because i'm I'm a little ignorant in all of this. Um, I've never bought a comedy record, although now that I as I was thinking about it last night i was I do remember like friends having you know um, uh, CDs of um, uh, totally blanking on on some comedy and musical comedy records. But at anyway, it, it, I do, I do remember like a, a time where my friends would have like an Adam Sandler or Dane cook or something like that in high school. But it, um, what does the audience look like? Are you, are you doing these on vinyl? Are they, are they strictly digital or uh, who, like what type of people are buying these and how are they being consumed?
1: Well, we learned, you know, okay. we, we tried a lot of things and I would say the bottom line is that, uh, Comedy records are 100% digital download.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense. Um,
1: and we don't we don't run them on the streaming services at all because that would make us no money. Because people, right. you know, the thing about a comedy record is you want to hear all the bits on the record, right? But you probably only want to hear them once,
0: right? Okay, that makes sense.
1: So streaming makes no sense. It's not going to make anyone any money. And downloads are awesome because people want the whole record. They don't want just one cut off the record. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's been, it's been great in terms of that. Um, CDs we discovered, uh, indie retail, you know, rock, rock mom and pop rock shops yeah. don't do great for sure. selling CDs. I, I think people aren't going in there looking for comedy CDs. Yeah. So it just, that wasn't the greatest. Um, artists like to sell CDs on the road though. hmm That would make so sense. So now... The way we do it is we um, we offer artists the opportunity to make CDs. Like we'll make a few hundred CDs for them. That would uh, make sense for if they're going, you know, if they're going on tour, and you know, we'll just say how many do you want? And we'll make them, and that'll be that. You know, because the way for people listening who don't understand how labels usually manufacture stuff, you're you're usually talking about over a thousand. Like a thousand CDs is like the smallest quantity you'd ever get normally, because of the price break you wouldn't want to spend sure more yeah. than that um so but we learned quickly that if you you know you get a thousand comedy cds you're going to be sitting on 600 <laughs> comedy cds like real
0: fast all of your family so, gets that for christmas for the next five exactly, years exactly
1: for the next <laughs> 25 years yeah mm-hmm. so and then we discovered sadly that vinyl doesn't sell at all
0: really like, okay yeah oh, that's too Really? Oh. Yeah. I I I could have sworn there would be like a comedy section in record stores, but maybe I'm wrong, or maybe it's used like old stuff from the 60s or something. Well, and but.
1: you know, I had I think maybe I'm too old at that point because I used to have I mean, we had like Eddie Murphy raw and Steve Martin.
0: Right. I don't even know yeah. What the there, there names would be... of
1: those LPs were, but those are LPs. Like we listened to that on vinyl. Yeah. When I was a kid, and so I don't really know um, why that is not a hot market. Yeah. For <laughs> comedy but it's not I'm here to tell you (laughs) it is not right do not make vinyl yeah
0: that's too bad I mean that would be kind of cool No, it's it's really interesting and I mean so I mean from a business standpoint like we're talking when you're talking about digital distribution only um recording it at the show um and and I'm just like the whole engineering of it would be would be way less um complicated than a than a full-length record or band record um Music. I mean, the on the other side of things, music is is so competitive as, we, as we've talked about. Was doing comedy records a way to do something that was less common for labels to do, I mean, from a business standpoint?
1: Um, yeah, it, it was less competitive, but it was also like we just got really into it. It was really fun. Yeah, and and working with artists was working with comedians was really refreshing because it's only one person instead of a whole band. Right. And, right. You know, working with a band can be challenging because multiple people have multiple ideas and you know depending on on the artist it can be easier or less easy um but comedians uh, from the get-go are extremely aware that they are their own brand Mm. and that everything they do is to market themselves and so they really came to us fully formed you know they walked in and they were like yes you're making this album with me and we're gonna sell it together and it's gonna be part of my marketing plan for myself
0: interesting yeah
1: and that was just really exciting because it was like oh thank god <laughs> we don't have to like argue with you guys about dumb <laughs> stuff like you totally get it yeah like, get what we're doing the the you know the selling part of this is not is not a shock to you um
0: that's so true and, you know
1: <laughs> comedians have their own drawbacks which we also discovered because sometimes we would record a comedian work with somebody who then immediately moves to L.A. and gets a job writing on a on a late night show or something, and never does stand up again. Uh, right, like that has happened on a couple of occasions, and I don't begrudge people a paycheck sure. at all. Like I'm thrilled, but it's it's rough for us because you know part of the way that you sell um, all music, you know, music and comedy CDs is you have artists out in the marketplace. Mm. Being visible on tour, and that way people are like, "Oh yeah, I got to go check them out. I got to go buy that record."
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's it's so fascinating to me this this whole thing, and and I, I guess from a business standpoint, I was, I was curious. It got me thinking about um, this outside the box concept, and and I, I was um, thinking about Sam Phillips before he started Sun Records he was recording like weddings and funerals and, and selling copies of those. Is there something more to this idea of a label doing more non-music albums? Have you thought through that?
1: More not that's interesting. Non-music albums. No, I guess I haven't. I haven't thought through that, like thought about other things we could do. Cause I also feel like we kind of, we were in like a little bit of a dry spell in a desert mm, at that point. Right. Um, Right in 2012, 2013. And I feel like things have picked up in terms of the artists that we are working with and finding. So I think I'm feeling more excited about working with bands right now than I was like five years ago.
0: Sure. That's interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we're just having like that late, just like, I don't know, mid-teens kind of bummer. (laughs) time. It was just really hard to find <laughs> artists that we wanted to work with. Um, not that they weren't out there. We just didn't, we were just weren't, they weren't, we were not coming together for whatever reason. Okay. Um, so it just was like a bleak moment for me.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, I, th- I think <laughs> it's, I think it's really cool that it's led you down that, uh, that path. And, and, and I think it's, I mean, it's cool for comedians to have a record deal. I think that's must be great for them.
1: Well, I think it's been mostly good for them. You know, it's, it's part of their overall plan. You know, mm-hmm. they go along and they do a lot of different things, too. So I think it's been fun for us to sort of get in on what they're doing. And then, um, you know, we get to watch them grow and and go on and do different things. I mean, Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher had a, had a, a TV show called Take My Wife. Um, which unfortunately the second season, the, the, the channel folded before the second season uh, could be okay. released. But the first season was like one of the best shows I ever saw. They just killed it. So it was really fun. It was like, we've done both their records and yeah. 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 it's just nice to be involved.
0: Um, moving over to the podcast. So you, you run a podcast called the future of what, and, mm-hmm. um, you've got over a hundred episodes. How long have you been doing that?
1: Started in 2014.
0: Okay. Um, what was, what gave you the idea to do a podcast?
1: Well, I think I started it, um, as a radio show. Okay. Uh, and it's still on the radio in, in several different markets, like nine markets or something around the country, uh, including here in Portland, it's on X-Ray FM. Right. Um, but... I think I just was really inspired to do it because I was so tired of, you know, the music industry has such a bad rep Mm, amongst people. And especially throughout this whole digital revolution, you know, one of the reasons that people often gave for feeling fine about stealing music or taking music for free was they're like, well, the labels never give the artists any money anyway. Right you know that was an excuse I heard a lot and read in a lot of articles you know people were just like well why should I bother paying for music because that's just going to go to the label and the Mm. label just you know goes and buys another yacht or something and never passes (laughs) that money on to the artist. How many yachts do you have? (laughs) Yeah exactly oh my god (laughs) and you have no idea (laughs) um and I just was like you know that's really crazy that people think that and and so you know that's one prong the other prong is i work with artists every day artists as a whole do not understand the business that they're in mm. that is not a disparaging comment about artists uh, yeah like, i know what you mean it's frightening to me that they can continue to be art. it's like perfectly fine and you know not that's not their fault mm. it's like it's totally okay in america in this world to be an artist and not have a clue about how the business part works. And I think that that's really 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 damaging to the artist. Right. I mean, people have asked me before like are you afraid when your artists are, you know, asking questions or when they want more knowledge and I'm like you have no idea how thrilled I am mm. to work with an educated artist. I would so much rather have someone standing over my shoulder being like now how much money do we make from streaming last month? Or like, how? what what is this figure for? I would so much rather have that than have people have no idea because when you have lack of knowledge, and I think this is across the board, and I also think this speaks to the larger political situation in our country. Like when you have no knowledge, Mm. anything can fill that void. Like any wild surmise or supposition or um, stereotype or fear or anxiety can fill that void.
0: Amazing. And so, you yep. know,
1: out of nowhere, someone will accuse me of doing something terrible. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, why do you think that? And they're like, well, I don't know, but I just think that. And then, you know, you have to sit down and be like, okay, let's look at the books, dudes. Like, Let's look <laughs> yeah. at what's actually happening here. Like, wh- wh- you know, I've been accused of doing crazy stuff. And and one of the things that Kill Rock Stars has always prided itself on, my husband did it before me and I've always done it, is we pay our artists four times a year and if you and you get a royalty statement four times a year which i make with my own hands and if you don't understand anything on that statement i my, here is my email here is my phone number like walk in here call me get a hold of me wow. and tell me why you don't understand it because that is so dangerous like i would i'm so scared of artists not understanding things and then being angry you know yeah, because no, it's amazing. just complete like what can i do like i i am as transparent as i possibly can be because it's their money. They should know where it went. They should know where it's coming from. They should know, you know, why they got what they got. And I worry a lot because I feel like artists, you know, they'll sign contracts with people that they don't understand.
0: Right. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And then they'll be really upset about it years later. I, it's just, you know, lack of knowledge is not a good thing. Yeah. Education is extremely important. So that's that's one of the other reasons that I started the podcast because I'm like, any. Anything I can do to help people understand. And just sitting behind my desk every day is clearly not working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I want more people to understand than the people that I just happen to work with. Like, I want to be as useful as possible. And so to that end, I started a podcast about the music business where I talk to other people who work in the industry so that weekly, you know, musicians can hear from people who work every day in the industry who've totally got their best interests at heart and who want them to succeed and be career artists you know nobody wants Mm -hmm. you to be a one-hit wonder and Mm -hmm. like come and go they want you to like make a living and not have to be a barista and all that other good stuff Um, because all of our jobs depend on that too you know it's it's like we want artists to succeed and so we talk all the time you know that's what i do is i i talk about i talk to people about what they do in the industry how they do it and, you know, give information that people need to know. And and I really feel like it's a mission that's only grown in importance in the last three and a half years because it's it's critical, you know. It's critical that artists every day m- more and more, you know, with this whole Spotify thing, the whole streaming music, you know, now artists are getting paid on income streams that they can't even see. Yes. And they can't, you know, the, the fractions of a percent, you don't know why you're getting paid. Totally. What you're getting... You know, it's like, it used to be that you got, that you sold a CD for 10 bucks and you got seven of that, mm-hmm. $7 yeah. of that yeah. 10 bucks. Like that was easy, right? That's easy math. You can figure that out. Nowadays, forget about it. It's like, how do you explain to an artist? Well, you made, um, you know, 16.50 from streaming <laughs> and I don't know why, and I don't know, <laughs> yeah. <you>
0: know yeah.
1: <laughs> like how much or what, you know, it's just, it's it's crazy. So, um, yeah, I think it's more important now than ever that artists understand that they're business people too. Yeah. And that they, and that they either hire someone who understands business or, or they educate themselves.
0: Yeah. I I think, I think that's such a great point and you're right. And I feel like if you're working in it every day, you're waking up and, and you know, the numbers, you know, the reasons it's, it becomes, uh, easy to assume that the artists know all this information as well but we're, you know, we're forgetting that they're, they've got their head in a guitar and they're thinking about other things. Um. Totally. I think that's, I think that's great. I love what you said about putting a face to the other people or sorry, I should say what you implied, putting a face to the other people in the industry who have been, who were hurt by piracy and who contribute to an artist's career behind the scenes. I mean, you've, you've talked with engineers like Sylvia Massey and, um, uh, label owners like Jesse and and um, there's there's Patreon and CD Baby, Bandcamp companies are all featured. Um, I love that. I think that is that is a really cool thing of, of uh, highlighting those other contributors.
1: Well, it's because we're you know we we all do this together. Like this is a this is it's an industry, but it's a it's a pretty friendly industry. People are all you know people know each other, and we work together for years and mm. years. Booking agents, press people, you know, people who do this all the time. And and these people are just as devoted to the artists as anyone else. And so, you know, I, I feel like we should get that out there as much as possible that, like, listen, I'm doing a job because I love music. I'm helping artists because I love their music I, and I want them to succeed and keep making music. I mean, I just got an email today that I sent around to my staff and I just said, like, slitting my own wrists in five minutes because... <laughs> The email was about a new algorithm that's been created in Japan that will take your favorite songs from whatever era of music you like and create a new song that you will personally like.
0: Oh man.
1: And it makes an e it has an AI that it will sing vocals over it oh. in the style that you <laughs> like
0: Oh my goodness. And so it's basically
1: (laughs) like a new company that is just making, like it can make songs for you that you're guaranteed to like, because it's like taking all your information about like the stuff that you like, and it'll just like spit out songs. And I'm like, okay, is that the world we want to live in? Like, do we (laughs) really want to live in a world where no human people make music? Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think that's what we're going for. You
0: know, but it's the kind of world that really inspires art. I think it's like, you know, that's why vinyl is, has come back is because it has always been a counter to the, the digital and to technology. And so I feel like when stuff like that happens, it's like the the human element of artists kind of have to raise the bar and stand up and 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 fight back against that.
1: Yeah. And I hope, I mean... You know, that's that article you mentioned. Is that I can't remember who wrote that, Liz Pelly or Jen Pelly, <laughs> one of the Pellys? I, I think, it I was think in wrote that article. Cash was
0: right. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Um, and and that that article is really scary because it basically implies that that's the direction that algorithmic music is taking us in. Right. You know, is is just stuff that's tailored for what you want to hear. And like, do we just want to make music that people? want to hear based on other music that people have listened to that they've liked. And I think, you know, that's the part that everyone's missing is like part of the great stuff thing about music is innovation, right? Like Mm -hmm. new stuff that Mm -hmm. when people Mm -hmm. do something like the clash or, you know, Nirvana, like nobody'd ever heard that shit before. Like it was, it was so exciting. I mean, I remember the first time I heard smells like teen spirit and I just like stood there. First of all, I was on a dance floor in London, which I couldn't (laughs) believe it because (laughs) The dance clubs in London are different from in America, where you know they actually play like real music instead of just like house music. Okay. And I was like, "Oh my god, this song is blowing my mind! Like, I cannot even believe that this is happening." <laughs> right. And I'm like in a dance club. Right. Like, they're basically telling me, not only is this amazing, but you can dance to it. Yeah. <laughs> like, feel free. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, it's you know, innovation is is half the, the half or more of the the magic of music and and to to think that we're gonna move to a place where you don't have any innovation you just have like the same stuff recycled because right. like you like right if yeah you like yeah such that's and right. such, you're gonna love this thing that sounds <laughs> just like it
0: that's terrifying um I don't want to take any more of your time I, I've I love chatting with you this is I mean this is so great I just there's so much um information here I'm just getting distracted with with thinking about these <laughs> these philosophies you're you are um, I really, I'm just curious. I'm really grateful for that. You've done this. You, you do a lot for the indie label community. You're part of a label coalition that, that Ben was telling me about. And we, we talked a little bit, um, about that with him. You're on the board of, of A2IM. Um, you do yep. your own podcast, which you talked about and, and, and you've done a lot of other shows and you, and you're doing this podcast. What, like, what motivates you really to be so generous with your time and, and knowledge of the industry? Cause it's not normal. I don't think.
1: Well, uh, that's funny. I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's not normal. Like, to me, it ca- seems kind of normal because of the people that I, I get to meet all the time. I mean, that was really, you know, I got involved with A2IM about 10 years ago. That's the Indie Label Trade Association mm-hmm, in the yeah. U.S. And when I started to meet other label owners, like, I, I feel like being a label owner can feel very much like you just live on an iceberg yeah, and you're just by right. yourself. And, and I really felt that way a lot. I, I only knew a couple other people who ran labels and they were definitely men, you know, right? Yeah. which there's nothing wrong with being a man. It's just that I was kind of like, well, here I am right. on this weird iceberg. Um, but when I started going to HYM meetings and meeting other people who ran labels, it just really started inspiring me um, by making me realize that like, wait a second, what I do is not that unusual. A ton of other people do it. Mm. And everybody does it in a different way. And everybody's got a different take. And you know, such interesting people decide to start indie labels, and such interesting people end up running indie labels, and and are in the high ranks at indie labels. You know, yeah. I've I'm all I've just loved meeting the people and working with people, and now I've been lucky enough to go around the world and meet. You know, I was at um, IndieCon Australia last year, which wow. is the, um, the conference for uh the independent labels in Australia. Hmm. And oh my God, those people are so awesome. Like it was so fun. It's That's it's like great. you find your tribe, you know, yeah. like these tribes are right, around the right, world. Right. And it's just, you know, I love these people. And I think part you know, part of it is that I just lost any shyness. You know, it's like if I ever had any shyness or fear, I kind of got over it. And I think that's probably just age, right? You just get old <laughs> to to a certain age and you're just like, fuck it. <laughs> like, I don't care anymore. Right. You know, what yeah, are you going to do? You true. think I'm stupid? Fine. That's fine. <laughs> I don't care.
0: Um,
1: but I also realized, you know, it's like being in this business for 20 years, you end up with a lot of information and, and experience that other people can totally benefit from. And and so it's like, I'm not going to sit on that. right? You know, mm. I I want to share it. And I want to learn, you know, the industry is constantly changing. I mean, I learn stuff every single day and I love having a podcast where I get to talk to people who are doing new stuff because, man, I learn stuff all the time. And it's so great to finally, um, you know, to just feel like I'm not, I'm not on an iceberg. I'm part of a community and that community is active and moving and growing and changing. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I feel like I totally want to keep doing that forever. Like I don't want to stop, um, doing that. And it inspires me and it keeps me excited. It keeps me excited about the job that I do. That's amazing. So I think that's probably the biggest, well, yeah, and the biggest thing I can say about that.
0: I think it's, I think it's awesome and I love it. And, and I, and I shouldn't have said it's not, it's not normal. It's, it's just not something you would expect in any business really for people to be so, um, uh, you, to, to, to be so generous with, with, um, experiences and to share different challenges like that. And but I think it's great and I have, I have seen it a lot and, and I I guess maybe it's just coming from, I always assumed, you know, um, it's like what you were talking about filling that void. You just think, man, these labels look like they've got everything so figured out. They must be these really uh, evasive, intimidating people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And they're not like, they're really great, nice, awesome people who have, um, questions, too. You know, it's like they've got questions, too. They're not... Everybody doesn't have all the answers, except possibly Martin Mills, who definitely might have (laughs) all the answers, (laughs) is humanly possible that he does. that's possible. Um, But he's also very, you know, it's like I've discovered he's very approachable. He's a really nice guy. You know, he's... he's, I've been on the board with him for years. Wow. Um, And you know that's you kind of have to get over your like weird indie label, you know, fandom yeah. which you know seven people know but like you you're <laughs> like oh my god, Martin Mills.
0: Ah!
1: <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's it's like and i i really do think age is part of it cuz there's some i have some friends who are younger who have been running indie labels just for like a few years mm-hmm. and they're maybe in their late 20s and early 30s and i think it's harder for them To step up because I think you're still pretty unsure of yourself at that age, but I'm serious about like, there's an age after which you just do not give one (laughs) flying F. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, what, what are you going to do?
0: Well, I love it because we've all benefited from it. So it's, it's been great. What does, what does 2018 look like for Kill Rock Stars? What are you excited about?
1: Well, I am excited about Horse Feathers. Uh we have oh, a new, have a Horse new feathers record. record. Right? Yes. Yeah, coming May 4th and it's unlike any of his previous records. Well, let's let me amend that. It's a lot like his previous records except that instead of doing all of his dynamics with strings, which mm-hmm. he's always done, he got like a northern soul rhythm section. Oh, it's unbelievable. Interesting. Unbelievable. It's so cool. Oh man, <laughs> it's,
0: I can't wait. I remember seeing it's that incredible. announcement. I'm excited for it,
1: yeah, so that's that's my big thing I'm excited about, and then we've got a few other records coming out. we've got um two comedy records so far um okay we've got a great new band from Portland called Lithics, which I'm very excited about uh yeah, I mean you know it's stuff is stuff is happening, there's still stuff in the in the world that you can get excited about. And that's always nice. It's like, you feel like you're still alive right. in the morning. You're like, oh, I love this music. I love it that people, I love it that bands are still making awesome music. You know, yeah, that's so refreshing and makes me feel so much better.
0: Totally. And I, I just, I, I think it all comes down to that, that feeling of clicking a track and, and just getting those goosebumps, like what you were talking about on the dance floor in London. Yeah, that's the, absolutely. That's the feeling. Well, thanks so much, Portia. I I really really appreciate it. Um it's been so much fun to talk to you.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to hear I'm so glad you're doing a podcast series about labels. Oh. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to it.
0: Yeah, well, it's you know, it, it really comes down to what we talked about like what you were mentioning about the the iceberg thing. It's just that that feeling of i seeing all these labels that I admire big and small on on Twitter and and just thinking, how are they doing this? How are they, I I, I need to talk to them, <laughs> you know? Totally, yeah. No, I love it, uh, I think it's great. Thanks, Porsche, I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for um, listening. Check out Kill Rock Stars at killrockstars.com. Porsche's podcast, The Future of What, is available on iTunes. It's also available from killrockstars.com slash what. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast uh, if you haven't already and visit us at otherrecordlabels.com.